Good morning. How's everybody this morning? So good to see everyone. As most of you know, Chuck Colson was an advisor to President Nixon, and he would eventually be found guilty of obstruction of justice in the Watergate scandal. Before he served his prison term, he became a Christian. After he got out of prison, he founded the nonprofit organization Prison Fellowship. Now, I introduce you to him because Christian author Gene Vieth tells of a time when Chuck Colson was having dinner with a media personality and he began to talk to this person about his Christianity. This is the conversation. When Colson shared his testimony, his friend replied, Obviously, Jesus worked for you. And then he went on to tell Colson about someone he knew whose life had been turned around by New Age spirituality, crystals and channeling. Hey, it worked for her just like Jesus worked for you. Colson tried to explain the difference, but got nowhere. He raised the issue of death and afterlife, but his friend did not believe in heaven or hell, or even seemed interested to, and was not particularly bothered by the prospect of dying. Colson explained what the Bible said, but his friend did not believe in the Bible or any other spiritual authority. Through persistence, Colson was finally able to move into the mind and the heart of the listener. Now, this is the sentence that I need you to pay attention to. But not in ways that would have been effective through most of the history of the church in America. Now, let me tell you what I think he's trying to say. I think he's trying to say that the gospel is in tension. The gospel is in stress as times change and as beliefs change. I remember as a young boy waking up literally at the break of dawn, working hard all day long until the sunset, working like a man as a young boy. Now, my stepfather was as lost as water is wet, but I could always count on him saying, hey, listen, on Sunday... I could always count on him saying, hey, listen, this is the Lord's day. Our work can wait. Now, I believe there's a valid point here. It was only 30-some-plus years ago whether Christianity was implemented or accepted into a person's life, the basic truths of Christianity were acknowledged, even if it was something as simple as, there is a God and this is His day. Listen, beloved, Times are changing. And as times change, the tension of the gospel continues to exist. And it continues to be exalted and raised and elevated. We are being introduced. We are being immersed with a mindset that would suggest that everybody has the right to their own opinion to a very dangerous point. To the point that my opinion can become the truth 
that governs my life. And depending upon the level of influence and appeal of the person that I'm following on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, it's very easy for somebody else's opinion that becomes their truth to become my truth. We're having a family meeting at the house the other evening in the den. Now that's code word from my daughters for dad's going to get preachy to us about something. It's a golden moment for them. I don't know why they don't enjoy it as much as I do, but nonetheless, I'm laying out some things that we're going to begin to implement in our home, and one of my daughters says, do I have an opinion? And my response is, well, that depends. In relation to everything that I've just said, what's governing your opinion? What's your opinion being measured against? Because the reality is this, beloved, an ungoverned opinion is an extremely dangerous thing. And when we begin to couple an ungoverned opinion with cultural preferences, personal preferences, cultural pressures, cultural attractions, we're developing a recipe for one of the greatest dangers that can exist. Belief, yes, but belief in oneself. Now, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you that your greatest opportunity, your greatest privilege, your greatest option, your greatest possible accomplishment, and if you care about leaving a legacy behind, your greatest opportunity to leave a legacy behind is going to be found and seen and heard in your belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, belief in a Savior who made a one-time sacrifice for your sin, but belief in a Savior who is an ongoing servant to your sin condition. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and let's explore this a little bit. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30 through 47. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Wow. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but listen to this. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. 
You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet, you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, as we, as we read this passage, Lord, we are taken aback by your commitment to the cross. We're taken aback. We are in awe at your commitment to the Father's will. We are taken aback and in awe, God, that you would be committed to people like the Pharisees, but God, people like us. And so today, Father, we are, I pray, confronted with a very great need. And I pray that, Lord God, You would begin to do a work in our hearts that first of all, we would see the need. That, God, we would see Your pleasure. And that we would see Your commitment that men would be saved. Lord, awaken us to our role. Awaken us to, to our place. Awaken us as the church to be committed and defined by the things that you are that you love and the things that you're passionate about. Change us, God, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I want to talk to you this morning about what belief in Christ really looks like, and I want to encourage you to lean in this morning. Uh, I find myself extremely convicted and extremely aware of my condition and extremely aware of the gap that exists between my heart and the Savior's heart. I invite you to lean in this morning as we talk about what belief in Christ looks like. And I want to offer three suggestions. I want to talk about, number one, a subdued life. I want to talk about a selfless love. And thirdly, I want to talk about a single liberation. Let's reread verse 30 as we talk about a subdued life this morning. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus stands and serves as a grand example through this self-proclamation. This statement is so huge. And the implications of verse 30 are so selfless that it would almost be unbelievable if this statement was made by anyone other than 
God in the flesh. Listen, don't get me wrong. I know that there are men and women of God who are defined by great passion and consistent selflessness. I know that there are men and women and young men and young women in this congregation that are defined by such passion and selflessness. I've experienced it from you. But there is a reality that regardless of how passionate we are, or how selfless we are, we are to one degree or another marred with some sort or some level of sinful self-interest. Listen, Paul's confession of himself in Romans chapter 7 is the status of all humanity. It is the status of every man and every woman of God. Listen to what he says. Romans 7 verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I want to suggest this morning that Paul is talking about the Christian man that is confronted with the reality of indwelling sin in his life. So in context, Romans 7 in context, Paul loves the law. Why wouldn't he? It's given of God. It's instituted by God. It's implemented of God. But love for the law exposes a person to the wretchedness of the man. Understand that. Understand that a love for the law exposes a person to the wretchedness that resides within him. And I want you to know that Paul, whether it seems like it or not initially, he is establishing an argument with the intention of offering encouragement. We will not believe God perfectly. We will not follow God perfectly. We will not love God perfectly. We will not love our fellow man perfectly. How was that encouraging? Well, it becomes encouraging when we realize that it is a given that we will fail to follow Christ perfectly. And number one, He's not taken aback by that. Christ was not shocked when Peter denied Him. The Savior did not say, wow, Peter, I didn't know that was in you. The Savior is not taken aback when we fail to follow Him perfectly. Know that now when you fail in the future and therefore allow that truth to prevent you from floundering or wallowing in the midst of your imperfections. Listen, a subdued life is not a perfect life. Know that now. A subdued life is a life that looks to Christ who is perfect, so that we would take on His perfect yoke and learn from Him who is perfectly gentle, perfectly humble, and look to His heart and find rest for our souls in the midst of our imperfections. Jesus too loved the law, yet He had no sin. He who has no sin has no self-interest. That's what makes this statement from Christ literally amazing. When Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. The word nothing means not one single thing. 
there is not one single thing that I can do or desire to do on my own. Why? Because I seek. The Greek word means to crave, to pursue, to demand, to do no single thing on His own. Yet Christ seeks, craves, pursues, demands to do the will of the Father who sent Him. That's why this word believe that we keep falling back to and keep referring to that's used around 100 times in the Gospel of John. That's why it's always presented to us as a verb so that we see it in its active nature. To believe means to seek a will other than our own. Let's stop and pause there for a moment. Because when we talk about the will of a man being subdued by the will of God, the stage is set for some false imagery, and we want to prevent that. Perhaps when we think about our wills being subdued, maybe we have the thought or the imagery of an invading army stepping in, overtaking, and governing those who are weaker and taking away, stripping away their freedom. Maybe that's the imagery we have. Maybe if you are here and you are a young adult, Maybe the imagery you have is when you think of your parents who established boundaries in your life, for your life, because they love you so much, maybe you might interpret that as an attempt of your parents to take away your independence and force their ideals upon you. I want you to know that that is all, beloved, indeed false imagery. Yes, Christ wants to subdue our hearts. Yes, Christ has the intention of subduing our minds. And yes, there is the idea of an invasion taking place. But do you understand what that means? Do you understand what that means, especially in light of Mark 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came. Here's the purpose. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Listen, Christ gets it. The Godhead gets it. Christ gets the fact that He doesn't need us. But He is ever aware of the reality that we are in great need of Him in order to be ongoingly served by Him. Listen, the subdued life is not in any way, shape, or form a perfect life, but it is a life where God begins to introduce us to the things that He loves. It is not a perfect life, but it is a life in the midst of our imperfections where God begins to teach us and then enable us to love the things that He loves. Enable us to be passionate about the things that he's passionate about. Now listen, let's be crystal clear of what it is that the Savior's passionate about. In this context, in this chapter, in this Bible, throughout the course of human history, the Savior is passionate about people. Specifically, the Savior is passionate in relation to people believing. The Savior is passionate about sinners believing, and He is passionate about His will overtaking our will that we would be involved in the sinner's belief. Paul stated in Romans 10, 13 through 14. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? It's a rhetorical question. They won't. Then He asks, And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Rhetorical question number three. They can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Last rhetorical question. It is impossible. So understand that the subdued life, it's not a perfect life, but it's a life that cares about belief taking place in the lives of others. In, in, in an imperfect way, absolutely. But it will be in existence regardless. We're called to care about that. But I believe to care about that, there has to be a purposeful pursuit for God's will to simply smother our will. How does that happen? Well, let's move to the next thought. A selfless love. Look at what Jesus says. Let's reread verse 30, and then let's look at verse 34. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Verse 34, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I am so taken aback by the Savior's selflessness, even now. Because right now, at this moment, He is under great scrutiny. He is under great investigation. Let's remember what's taking place here. The Savior is, in a sense, offering a defense because He has been accused of breaking the Sabbath because He's healed a man. In addition... He has called God His Father, therefore claiming equality with God. So the Savior is in a sense defending Himself as if He is in a courtroom. As a matter of fact, if you back up to verse 17, when Jesus begins His defense, it says that Jesus answered them. The word answered is from a Greek word that means He is making a legal defense. He is testifying... God in the flesh is testifying. God in the flesh is defending Himself. Not for His own sake, but that other people would believe. Why is that so relevant? Let me tell you why that's so relevant. It's so relevant because the Savior owes no man any explanation for anything. Yet it seems as if that's exactly what He is doing. It seems as if the Savior... God in the flesh is bending down to accusing man and offering a defense to a sinful man even though he's God in the flesh. Now, let me explain why. Because at the very core of His selflessness... See, when we talk about the Savior's selfless love, yes, it's for people, but more importantly, it's for God's purpose of redemption. Okay? Look at the core of the Savior's selflessness in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you, you, you sinners, you accusers, you religious leaders, I say these things so that you may be saved. 
The Son of God owes no man anything, yet it seems for the sake of salvation, their salvation, He humbles Himself. Not only does the Savior humble Himself before the Father, but it seems as if the Savior is humbling Himself before His accusers and pleading with them. But understand this. The Savior's defense is not for His sake. It is for their sake. Verse 34, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Listen, the Savior is willing to set aside the testimony and the witness of John the Baptist. As beautiful as it is, as providential as it was, the Savior is willing and He's getting ready to set that witness aside because there is a weightier, more relevant witness that the Savior has aside from the witness of a man. The Savior has the witness of John the Baptist. And we'll go back and we'll review these. The Savior has the witness of His works. The Savior has the witness of His Father. And the Savior has the witness of the Word. The Savior is willing to set aside the testimony of a man because He has more relevant witnesses. He does not need the witness or the testimony of John the Baptist. But He knows something. He knows that they do. And therefore, He's willing to humble Himself and present to them and adapt to their need rather than rise up and defend Himself. What a Savior Things are spiraling quickly for the Savior. If you look in verse 16, we see that He's persecuted. He's being persecuted because He healed on the Sabbath. That persecution immediately drifts to the desire to kill Him because He called God Father and claimed equality with God. But understand that as the Savior offers this testimony of John, it's not to change their minds in relation to killing Him. It's to change their minds in order that they would believe Him. Now, I want to tell you this morning and suggest to you that that's what selfless love does. Selfless love for the Father's will causes a man to humble himself, to lower himself, to bend down, even if there is the slight chance that belief will take root and deepen and grow in the heart of a sinner. That's what selfless love for the Father's will does. It causes a man to take no thought whatsoever of his own life if there is the slightest chance that a sinner may believe. Listen to the beauty of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says this, To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, listen, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they 
may be saved. Listen, we know what Paul's talking about. He's talking about exercising Christian freedom or refraining, doing what he needs to do to not create a stumbling block for other people. But I think the implications for us, I think they're pretty simple. And I think that for the sake of belief, what that means is we just simply try really, really hard to overcome the differences that would otherwise separate us from an unbeliever. I think that's what he's meaning. So, if I have an unbelieving neighbor, and my unbelieving neighbor happens to be Italian, and my unbelieving neighbor invites me to his house for a glass of wine to celebrate the great grape harvest that takes place in Italy because he's so proud of his heritage and his lineage, I have the freedom in Christ to say yes. Specifically, I have the freedom in Christ to say yes with the intention of a door being open to present the gospel with the hopes that he may be saved. When otherwise, if I would say no, now I'm not obligated, but I have the freedom. Where otherwise, if I would say no, I may run the risk of offense and never have the opportunity to ever share the gospel with him again. I have the freedom. Now the flip side, as a Christian... I believe that I can have a glass of wine. Yet, if that fact would cause a brother or a sister in Christ to stumble, I refrain. That's what I believe that Paul is saying. I believe that Paul is saying, if my background is from a church, and the expectation of our worship is more organized and more solemn, I have the freedom to worship the way that my brothers and sisters worship when I go to Africa and worship with them. I have the freedom to worship the way that my brothers and sisters in India worship when I go and worship with them. I have that freedom. And I believe the implications may be even a little bit more practical. I believe, and I pray that this is a governed opinion. (laughs) If not, let me know. I believe that I have the freedom to go to an unbeliever's house, an acquaintance that I'm trying to share the gospel with because I deeply care that they're saved. Because if we don't clearly articulate the gospel to them, you know they won't be saved, right? If we're not the voice that clearly articulates the gospel message, they will not believe. They will not call on Him. So if I am burdened with an acquaintance and he's an unbeliever and I go to his house and I'm burdened to share the gospel, I am free in Christ to not feel condemned and to not condemn him when he's having his second bourbon and coke and I'm drinking an ice water and loving him with the gospel. I have freedom to do that. I have the freedom in Christ to not condemn him because he's having his second drink. I have that Freedom. You know what Paul's doing? Paul is calling me, he's calling you, not giving us the option, but giving us the instruction to forfeit all of our rights, all of our privileges, as did the Savior, to adopt to the need of others that they may believe. Do not forget the depth by which the Savior did that. I remember when I was briefly out of the military, I'm working in Mount Hope, we're working in an open shop, we're rebuilding mining equipment. Just a bunch of guys working hard, 
enjoying the breeze, music's playing. And I remember this so distinctly, and I think there's a reason why. Music's playing, radio's playing, and there's a song that comes on the radio by Jefferson Starship called We Built This City on Rock and Roll. Do you know that? <laughs> Anybody remember that song? And I remember, I remember it so clearly as if it was yesterday. A gentleman who was a believer came up to me and he said, well, they better enjoy that city now because when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be anything left of that city. And I thought, and I'm an unbeliever at this point, so the edited version of my response to that is, Wow, what a, what a turnoff. One of the greatest regrets that I have in relation to being a Christian and dealing with an unbeliever is when I hired this girl to work for us at the restaurant. She was hired as a cook. We'd worked together for a few weeks, and she approaches me and she says, Listen, I just really need to talk with you. I said, Okay. We sit down, table, we begin to talk. And man, she just really begins to unload from the depths of her heart. She begins to reflect back to her infanthood, where she remembers some things that her uncle had done. She remembers reflecting back to that time and even to where she was at, at that moment, being haunted by voices. Okay? And she ended, she ended her she ended our talk together by saying, you know, I guess I'm kind of sharing all of this with you because I want you to know that I'm gay. Okay. And then she followed that statement through by saying, and I believe God's okay with it. One of the greatest regrets that I have, I wish that I wouldn't have been so stupid as to come back the next day with my Bible in my hand and all of the passages highlighted to say to her, this is why you're so wrong. I wish I would have instead exercised my Christian freedom to not feel the need to respond, to not feel the need to retaliate. Listen, I'm not talking about compromise by any means. I wish I wouldn't, I wish I would have exercised my Christian freedom to lovingly do like Jesus did, humble myself, lower myself, adapt myself to her need so that I had the opportunity to continue to look for that open door that she may be saved. But I was no different than the guy that approached me about the song on the radio and that door was shut immediately and that door was shut forever in relation to me anyway. And I know what she was thinking, the same thing I was. That is the biggest turnoff that I've ever seen. We were at Hamlet's one day. And this is when we had, we had small groups. This is several months ago, actually. I didn't ask his permission to share this with you, but since it was stated in public, I believe I have rights. <laughs> and we're on the porch because after we had our time of teaching, we would separate men and women. We're on the porch, and one of his sons, jokingly, yet you can see a little bit of mischievousness in his eyes, one of his sons looks to him, I'm not saying who it was, and says, yeah, Dad, when I grow up, I'm going to smoke cigarettes or cigars. I don't know if you remember this or not. It was said in jest. And so Hamlet puts his arm around his son and says, Listen, I would much rather you smoke and love God than feel that you shouldn't smoke and be indifferent toward God. That's the religious freedom that we need to exercise because that's the need. The need isn't, if I ever catch you with a cigarette in your hand, boy, I'm going to wear you out. 
No, the goal is exercising the religious need and the religious freedom that goes straight to the heart of the matter and and to the heart of the person. Do not ever forget the degree by which the Savior humbled Himself, lowered Himself, and adapted to the need of men. These men. These religious men. As a matter of fact, F.B. Meyer states of this moment that we're reading about. This moment closed his mouth in self-vindication. He stood there. You know who we're talking about? We're talking about the Savior. We're talking about God in the flesh. God of all, Lord of all, creation, Creator of all, Creator of heaven and earth and men. Standing before sinful man on trial. He stood there in that Jewish court charged with Sabbath breaking. There were many grounds on which he might have based his claim to be exonerated of any heinous crime, but he forbore to use them. He expressly refused to establish his right. And it was a right that he forfeited. He expressly refused to establish his right to act on his own motion or the prompting of His own will. When He said, if I bear witness of Myself, My witness is not true, it would almost appear that He thought that He would have been false to His mission if He had spoken a word on His behalf. It stayed Him from summoning witnesses. He could have summoned into that court John, from the dungeon where he was lying, and the Jews would hardly have been able to refuse his testimony. Remember, that's Jesus' first witness, John. He could have summoned the long lines of healed ones who had been the subject of his miraculous power. The second witness, his works. He could have summoned page after page and line after line of the writings of Moses, witness of the Word. But he only touched on these things very lightly, as if he mentioned the names of his witnesses and then refused to subpoena them. And this was his dread, that the attention of men should be diverted away from the Father and unto himself. And as he took every opportunity to reveal the Father, so here, with no thoughts of himself, he set himself to his chosen task. The cross that men would believe. Listen, beloved, Paul is saying, exercise your freedom in Christ to adapt to the unbeliever that they may be saved that they may believe. The obvious question is, how far do we go? (laughs) Right? How far do we go with that? Do I sit down in the pub with my lost friend and order a drink because I don't want to offend him and come across as holier than thou? How far do I go? Christ is consumed with the singular passion of people believing. Paul is consumed with the singular passion of people coming to know Christ, that they may be saved. He'll lower himself in order to do that. So how far do we go? Paul gives us that answer. 
in 1 Corinthians 10.32 when he says, Give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to Greeks. And thirdly, give no offense to the church of God. You adapt to the needs of others in order that they may be saved. And you go as far as you can go. You go as far as you need to go, but you stop when that process begins to open the door for sinful behavior in your life. That's when you stop. The call is to win them and draw them into holiness, not compromise your own. The goal is to lead them to Christ and not compromise the witness of Christ. We go as far as we can go. We go as far as we need to go. But we do not negotiate a gospel truth for a moment. Not for one moment. We don't do that. I had an opportunity to go to the movies with a gentleman. Asked me to go. I think he's an unbeliever. And I had the opportunity to go, spend time with this person, share the gospel, wait it out, realized what he wanted to go see, and my only response was, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. It's not because I'm a spiritual guru and I just don't do those things. It's because I'm weak. And the best thing for me is to not do those things. And I had to say, I can't do that. I can't go there with you. There's going to be times that we have to do that. When we begin to compromise, we're going to rob someone. We're going to rob ourselves. The last point, which is a single liberation. Start in verse 39 and read through to verse 47. Jesus said, this, this will be brief. <clears throat> you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe Receive glory from one another. That's going to be key. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When Moses wrote of prophets and priests and tabernacles and Passovers and all of those types of things, yeah, he was talking about Christ. Every time that a man hears the gospel, every time that a man reads the gospel, he is extended an offer to believe. But every time a man declines to believe, when that invitation is extended to him, the accusation from God, the accusation of guilt, begins to build. See, Jesus stands as a defense lawyer defending His case. But note this, every time that the Savior stands as a defense lawyer defending His case, He is at the same time, he is at the same time being a prosecutor holding people accountable for the very truth that He's presenting to them. The key verse and the reality of the human condition in relation to belief is found in verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Greek rendering of that sentence is, you do not want to come to me. 
You do not come to me because you do not want to come to me because you want your own glory more than you want me. You want to be settled and consumed with your own glory in your own world, your own motives, your own purposes, more than you want to be overtaken by the will of the Father on your life. You do not come to me because you simply just don't want to. Why? Verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You don't want to be humble because you're too busy wanting to be exalted. You don't... You don't want to be selfless because you're too busy wanting satisfaction on your own terms. That's what he's saying to them. You don't want to be consumed by love for others because you're so consumed with love for your own self. You don't want to be consumed with the love for God where you have to bend to the will of a holy God because you're so narcissistic that you find your total joy in looking at the pull of your own reflection completely oblivious to the reality of all of those around you who will not call on God and will not believe unless the gospel is clearly articulated from your mouth to their ears. Isn't it amazing that we just don't want the only thing that can liberate us? We just don't want it. The human, this isn't, a, this isn't a Pharisaic condition. This is, beloved, this is the human condition. We're so confused. Horatius Bonner adds a little bit of insight and, and orients us to truth in relation to belief when he says, listen, belief's not rest, or belief is rest, not toil. It is the giving up all the former weary efforts to do or feel something good in order to allow God to love and pardon and the calm reception of the truth so long rejected. Listen, that is the purpose for the invasion of God's will over our will. We simply just don't want Him. What does that mean to us, beloved? What does that mean to us as Christians? How does God invade our will? How does His, how does His will override our will? It's, it's simple as I just look at the Savior. Begins with our seeking. What's that mean? Pursuing, demanding, asking, persistence. Asking God to introduce us to His passion and then enable us to have a passion for His passion. Which is what? People. Specifically what? That people would believe. I'm sure you've heard of the Magician duo, Penn and Teller. You heard of them? You know who they are? Okay. Penn Gillette, he's the tall guy with the long hair, usually in a ponytail. He is a atheist. Very, very blatant about his atheism. But listen to what he said. His words. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize or preach. Okay? So that's the word I'm going to use. Let me start over. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell 
or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't evangelize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate someone to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Wow. I want to encourage you something here as we close. When you evaluate your heart and you realize that you're defined by a passion, more so, when you feel as if the passion that you have is a God-given passion, let me please, beloved, encourage you to never extract Christ's passion from your passion. In other words, whatever your passion may be, be sure that, that at the center of your passion, regardless of what it is, be sure that at the center of your passion is the Savior's passion that those who are not saved will believe through your passion. Otherwise, what's going on with you may not seem as a passion. It may just seem as your own personal agenda. And I think that's relevant. I have an acquaintance, and what I hear all the time is pro-life. Listen, praise God, man. We need that voice. We need those voices if anything, I would be ashamed that I'm not a loud voice in that arena. I don't know that I've ever preached the message on that. I don't know that I talk about it much. And to, to that person, I would say yes and amen. Praise God for you. But every time I'm around that person, I'm hearing their agenda. I'm hearing what they're accomplishing. and I'm hearing numbers. I'm hearing statistics and what we've got to do. This person we've got to talk to. I've yet to hear a care and a concern about the perhaps young, confused, disoriented woman that's making her way in there and coming back completely different. Not one time have I ever heard a care for the person that the person may be lost and may need saved. Listen, Jesus stood before the religious leaders. They brought to Him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. I don't think she was an actress. I think she was a woman caught in the very act, brought to Jesus. What do you say we do? And man, he did not bust out a lesson or a teaching on this is how you need to respond to the covenant of marriage. Oh, you've blown it. No, he offered her the gift and the opportunity for belief which would overflow and affect her view on marriage and everything else. We cannot have a passion. We cannot have a vision. We cannot have a dream without the Savior's passion being at the center of our passion. His passion is people, specifically, that people would believe. Okay? 
without us articulating the gospel, they will not believe. What does that mean for us? What do we do with that as individuals? What do we do with that as a church? I don't know. We need to talk about it. We need to pray about it because we've got to do something with it because it's the Savior's passion. Maybe we just need to ask Him to give us a passion that we don't have. Ask if you would bow your heads with me, please. And I, I, I would like for us to maybe do something a little bit different today. I would ask Hamlet if you would come forward. And I just want to, if, you're, if you are a man in this facility, if you are a member of Providence Bible Church, that's for everybody's, that, that statement is for everybody's protection. Would you, if God would lead you, just ask God to do in us what we may not want done on our own. Ask God cry out to God on our behalf as a body, God, give this to us. Give us this passion that we may not have. And Hamlet, when you sense that we may be done with that, if you would close us in prayer. So I just want to encourage you, if, if you are a man, you are a member, no obligations, just encouragement, and you feel that God may be leading you to pray over this body, in relation to some things that we've talked about this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. Father, I ask that words would be given to us by Your Spirit that we would open our mouths boldly to share Your Gospel with people. Let our... our Speech be seasoned with grace. Let us not emphasize simple morality to people when they have a spiritual issue. May not just be concerned with just getting people to act better. But may they in our lives You've made us salt. You've made us light. And so that wherever we are, wherever we go, we carry around the death of Your body, the death, the death of Your Son in our bodies. Um, may we die to our own agendas and die to our own um, the sense of being right or winning an argument. For the sake of your gospel, Father, may that be preeminent in our minds when we talk to people, not necessarily correcting uh, their, their their hairstyle or or their their choice about education or their or their you know the vehicle they drive or or love or sport they choose. All those silly silly things that we get distracted by, and even serious things like Moon pointed out so well may our agenda again or maybe our concern about the morality and the the, the, the place our country's going uh, as it relates to homosexuality um, may that not dominate our thoughts in such a way as to not share the gospel carefully with those people who are starving 
for your love and your attention, for the affection of a father. Father, your way is supreme and we we know that and, and I agree. May we be humble people who have been seized on by grace and may we be bold. And yet, may Father, our words just be seasoned with grace and acceptance. Not back away from hard truths, but not looking for a fight. Looking for Your Gospel message to be proclaimed clearly because how will they hear unless there's a preacher may women and children and men at providence bible church be preachers of the gospel of grace to this community may we preach it to each other may our our grace be our, our speech with each other be seasoned with grace May we stand firm on your holiness and your and your your person, but may we adopt and adapt your policy for sharing the gospel with the world. God, you're good. Thank you for being good. Thank you for your word. It transforms us. Thank you. Amen.